to another episode of the Idiopod. Uh, my name is Shane Glover. And I am TJ Stone. And today we have the distinct pleasure of talking with Jamie George, who has a few different roles in my life. He is uh, my pastor and TJ's pastor. Yep. He is my brother-in-law. Not my brother. Not TJ's brother-in-law. I am married to his second youngest sister. I don't know if that's the way to say that or not. But And uh, he's also, in a way, my boss of sorts. Yeah, that in, is interesting. In, yeah. In, uh, they say I don't work with family. Well, you know, it works for me. It works for me. I feel like I get along with anybody, including family, because I'm a good compartmentalizer. Yeah. And if you're an idiot, I can uh, tuck it away and just move on. Well, we, we've, we've said from the from day one that we're both idiots, so yes. you know, it's helpful. So, you, you can identify with it. Yeah. Like, I totally get it. I totally get it. But uh, all joking aside, great conversation just about uh, kind of his life and journey yeah. through ministry and the starting of Journey Church and all that good stuff. Yeah, it is a jam-packed full of full of deep, deep uh, information yeah. and about as as much as you can pack into about a forty-five minute chat. Right. Yeah, his. Uh, you you can't take the pastor out of out of the man. He he gave us some good nuggets. Absolutely, of wisdom. I feel like we got about two and a half sermons. There. Right. <laughs> sure did. Uh, but yeah, we had a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, he actually he has a he has a couple books that he's written. One is Love Well. One awesome is book. Poets and Saints, and uh, you could check out either one of those. He also has a new book coming out. Uh, well, at, at the at the time of the recording, it's this week uh, to Journey Church specifically, uh, and it's called Into the Kingdom. And there is a what do you call that? A tagline? A, a not a tagline? A, subtitle. A, a subtitle. Thank yeah. you. Uh, so it's called "Into the Kingdom." Heaven is closer than you think, mm. and so uh, they're releasing that to Journey here first of all, but eventually it will be out. And maybe by the time this is releases, who knows? It could be out on all the Amazons and all that good stuff. So type it into Amazon. See exactly. Yeah. Also, you can give him a follow. He's on Twitter and uh, Instagram, both at Jamie George twenty four. And he's just recently launched officially his coaching business yep. so check that out if uh, right. you're an organization and you have any uh, need for someone to come in and just give some some great practical uh, advice about systems and how to relate to people and uh, he can speak from a wealth of leadership experience and uh, principles that's right so great conversation i think you'll enjoy it and as always, check us out on idiopod.com. We are on the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram. Give us a like, rate, review, subscribe. Yes. Welcome to another episode of Idiopod. I'm TJ Stone. And I'm Shane Glover. And we're so happy to be here with our pastor, your friend and ours, Jamie George. Jamie, thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks for letting me hang. So, this is interesting for me because this will probably be the longest actual conversation you and I have ever had. Well, how about that? Well, looky there. Although, you and Shane, Shane and I have had, had a few. maybe one or two conversations that have lasted 40 minutes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. 
here and there. <laughs> so, so let's let's just get into it, man. Like, uh, I know I know from your sermons and just from your family and things that I know of you, I know things about you, but I I don't know like exactly where does the story begin for Jamie George. I know Buffalo, New York, is a piece of it. Yes, born and raised in Buffalo. Uh, my dad was a school teacher. And then he started writing some books. He wrote a book called, uh, he wrote an adaptation to a book called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Cool. He decided, hey, there's this great book, and it had been made into a movie, and he said, I'd like to turn it into a play. And so he wrote the kind of the screenplay. Not, sorry, not the screenplay for the film, but an adaptation is the live-action version. So it went so well, he, he wrote the sequel. There's actually a sequel to that story. A lot of people don't know it, called Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Oh, yes. It, yes. I read that you, in oh, second grade. You know that, yes. yes. So there you go. And then uh, James and the Giant Peach. So he just basically, he, in these child, these children's books with Roald Dahl, he just kind of started becoming that guy, kind of writing these playwrights. And um, that was super cool. He was really creative. The church we were going to was like, hey, you kind of seem like a creative guy. I want to come on and be our youth pastor. So he left teaching and writing and went into ministry. So then, around third grade, suddenly I was the child of a pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother didn't marry a pastor. She married a school teacher. <laughs> so that wasn't, you know, it was, took a little time for her to transition. It's, it's, oh a, it's an unusual role. So grew, grew up in then kind of a pastor's home. I mean, I'm the, it's the quintessential story of kind of there every time the doors were open, that whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a really, it was a pretty pleasant childhood. We, we, the church experience, by and large, was really cool, and it was a very program-driven church. So we were, we had fourteen Christmas cantatas. I mean, we had twenty thousand oh, wow. people come through our Christmas show. Like we were involved at the church in there all the time. But again, um, as I look back now, there are elements of my theological upbringing that that I I wouldn't necessarily agree with anymore. But the tone and the spirit of which I was led was quite beautiful. So I'm actually grateful. I had a pretty pretty great church experience. What background was that? Was that more like independent Baptist? Non-denominational. Non-denominational. The pastor, our pastor had gone to Wheaton College okay. and was part of an evangelistic team is what they called it. And so he kind of had that spirit in him. He just loved reaching out to people who were disconnected from the church. And so, he, I mean, this is in 70s and 80s. He had a television show and a radio show. And I mean, so we just kind of grew up in that world. So... Hmm. As a child, what, what sort of things were you into? What was important to you growing up and going into adolescence? I had no friends throughout my middle school years, so my best friend was Jesus and my dog. Um, good friends to have. Good friends to have. <laughs> I had a collie. And, uh, yeah, so I, that was hard. That was very shaping. I felt, you know, definitely there was a lot of loneliness. There was a lot of, like, trying to be seen. Uh, I, I, <laughs> my sense of humor developed then. It wasn't very funny. But I was trying to be funny, just trying to get people to see me. Yeah. Uh, so I did stupid stuff to try and get people to pay attention. But I just was alone a lot. So I would ride my bike up to the library, and I just kind of fell in love with American history. Okay. So I started reading American history. And so when I went off to college years later, I was like, well, I guess I'll be a history teacher. That, that, that was kind of the extent of my forethought of the future of my life, was I just read a lot of history. Now, the other thing that shaped me was we had athletics in my – my, the private school that I went to, soccer and basketball, and kind of like that's what you did if yeah. you were going to do anything extracurricular. So just kind of did what everybody did, but I was terrible. 
Sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, awful. I rode the bench all the time. I hardly knew what I was doing. But I started figuring out if I'm going to make it, I'm going to have to put in some extra time. Mm -hmm. So literally, it would be like they shut the lights off. My dad would come and pick me up maybe a half hour, 45 minutes late after practice. Everyone would be gone. I was used to being alone anyway. I'd go back into the gym with just kind of, and I grew up in, the, in New York, so basketball in winter would be like the moon's out at, at five, six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would be shooting the, I'd just be shooting free throws. I just, and so everything changed for me by ninth grade. Suddenly, um, I kind of started filling out, and the skills started to come along. And my sophomore year, I started playing more. My junior, senior year, a little bit whole, but I'm captain of the team, MVP. And uh, in soccer, where we went to the championship for the first time in our school's history. I scored the game-winning goal. We won the championship. So there was this pretty narrow, this arc of like, well, if you work your butt off and, and, and try really, really hard, then maybe you can find your identity. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that never left me, though, is those middle school years of being the underdog, um, in the high school years when I was kind of having quote success from an adolescent perspective i i kind of still had a heart for the people who were like me mm-hmm. so i kind of always had this like i was looking out for the guy who was still getting picked on mm-hmm. and so i always kind of had this sensitivity then i went off to college and i went to a christian university and i was involved in a lot of ministry stuff there and ministry stuff meaning they would have us like go tell the story of god in other countries and other things. We called that missions. Yeah. But I had a couple of people in my life that were pretty abusive at that time. And so it was almost like this reverting back to that middle school era mm-hmm. of feeling bullied or picked on or kind of this. I, I went through another season of that in college. Interestingly enough, though, it was by my spiritual directors. Mm. And I had one guy in particular just really unhealthy. And he was dealing with all his own stuff. I look back, I, 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 I don't, you know, like, it's forgiven and, and the guy was dealing with his own stuff hurting people hurt people yeah but but he hurt me pretty bad and there were a couple of moments where he there it was it was kind of shredding my dignity in front of other people and, and those things really shaped me to go um boy i just it doesn't seem okay to to crush people's spirit yeah and that affected the trajectory of my life good good mm-hmm. examples of what not to do yeah what, what not to yeah be. very much so uh so what what I'm hearing in this, I'm hearing you you go from middle school years and growing up to not really being known, trying to trying to find attention, trying to find identity, and then suddenly, just kind of by putting the work in mm-hmm. and the performance in. Yes, and performance so, is a good word. Yeah, and suddenly getting into that, I I wonder what messages you heard. Or, or received through that process of, of having to put in the work to get seen? Yeah, it's a great question. If you can perform and work hard enough, then you can be seen. Hmm. That's a pretty simple formula. Work harder than everybody else. Find the skill that's valued by your crowd. Succeed at a high level, and people will see you. Hmm. And you'll have a degree of popularity. Of course, the funny thing about high school is you graduate, it's shot like you know yeah. it doesn't matter <laughs> you can be the greatest right. you yeah. know the coolest high school quarterback uh-huh. in the world whatever else once you graduate it's like uh working at wendy's That's you're it. starting over <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter where you go what kind i'm curious what kind of uh would you say what kind of awareness did you have then versus you've worked through it now and see 
back that this is what was happening or were you processing no even then? i was not processing yeah. okay. no clue i look back then and I, I i i look at my children now and i'm like oh my gosh the level of awareness in i know their that's lives. what blows me away yeah too. Like, you know and i think part of it is we live in a world in our world i mean if you wanted information you went to the library yeah mm-hmm. there was no such thing as a cell phone right yeah you, know, you didn't have instant there's no such thing as an internet mm-hmm. there was so, literal work that had to go into yeah it. you like if you wanted information if you're like i wonder about that bird I mean, you're, what was that movie? Mm-hmm. What was that um, thing that happened historically? I mean, there, I mean it's hard to believe now because you're like, well, just just Google it. Yeah. But in those days, I had to get on my bike, ride. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, or, or you had to ask someone else who might remember mm-hmm. some a piece of information. So, you know, in those days, I just think we had such little access. We were very, very we were formed very much by our village, mm-hmm. by the people we were around. Yes. Our, the s- students today truly have a global village. If you don't like what one person's telling you, if mm-hmm. you're like, I think this teacher, I don't like agree with that teacher about this topic, I can go online and find 40,000 other people's yeah. perspectives on it. Right. Yeah. And we, we, that wasn't our world. No. And so I do think our, our I think students today have an advantage in, yeah. in access to information, which gives them a degree of enlightenment and awareness that we didn't have. We just talked about that last night at youth, actually, with uh, more in the idea of injustice and how mm-hmm. they, I, like for me, I had to go nine hours to the same Christian university to really interact for the first time with someone from a different culture from a different world um even in the states like you know hey i'm from california i'm like whoa what now you believe what <laughs> and we both love jesus that's weird um but now they're able to see all the injustices around the world yeah. in a matter of seconds yeah, yeah. um so it's and we, just... we we got we had a few cnn keep in mind so for again my childhood CNN, I remember when CNN started. Mm-hmm. Like It was like, oh, they're going to do a news station all the time. And all the pundits were like, well, no one's going to watch that. Yeah. Who wants to watch <laughs> yeah, that much news? Right, right. Yeah. Clearly, Ted Turner had a uh-huh. handle on things. Um, but uh, so instant news all the time, that was a new concept when I was in high school. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's a great question. What was my level of awareness? It, it was very little. I was just working it out. Yeah. I was just trying to find my way. Totally. So um, I'm curious, at what point did ministry become a part of your own story and you deciding to go into that? I, I know because you, you said it was third grade when your your own father sort of yeah. uh, showed that to you and showed that path to you. But at what point in time did you take ownership over that path for yourself? I don't tell this story very often. It's a great question. I remember my senior year in high school sitting in a, sitting in a church service and pastor's message. Actually, I think it was a guest pastor was in town. And I wrote, I used to take out the, we had, bullet, we had um, envelopes in the pews. Yeah. And I'd rip them open and I'd take notes and draw pictures. In middle school years, along with reading, I just drew pictures. That was kind of how I passed a lot of my time. I drew G.I. Joe. On, oh, on well ours. done. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I did some of that, some of that. So um, I would, yeah, so I'd open up the, in, in order to kind of stay engaged, I'd draw pictures of whatever the pastor was talking about. Um, and I'd take notes. And um, I remember this guest pastor was there, and I remember writing down youth pastor question mark. Hmm. And I don't think, I don't know that I even had ever told anybody. And I think I had, there was one other time, I, I think I did that twice. How old were you? This was a senior in high school. Okay. 
So went off to Liberty. At this, you know, they're like, "What? You know, you arrive. What do you, what do you want to declare?" I'm like, well, "I don't know. I guess I'm going to be a history teacher." I mean, it, college for me was basically extended youth group. Mm-hmm. Okay. I true. I remember a moment <laughs> yes. my senior year. True story. Senior, year, I would sleep through a lot of my classes. Now, part of it was um, academics came pretty easy to me. Okay. I never really applied myself that much, so I kind of just did whatever I was supposed to do to get by. I relate. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I slept through a lot of classes, the whole thing, and I remember sitting in my senior year, first semester. Theology 250. I'm, I'm, I have my head down. I'm sleeping on the thing. And I remember listening. I hadn't f- quite fallen asleep yet. And I remember hearing the professor say something about, you know, the Bible has different translations. You know, there's the King James Version and mm-hmm. there's the NIV Version. I remember going, huh, that would probably be helpful to know. And I sat up and I went, oh, that's why you go to class. Because they tell you stuff. That would be helpful to know. I, I promise you, like, clearly, I should not have been going to college for those previous three years. A novel concept. I mean, it, I literally was like, oh, that's why we're here. Um, in my last year and a half, I really paid attention. Uh, but my freshman year, I was in a, kind of a big campus gathering, and a guy was speaking, a guy named Dave Adams, and who became a friend and mentor later on. And... I remember him just talking about how the world was desperate for people to talk to teenagers. He said, I think the statistic then was something like 87% of those who awakened to Christ did so in adolescence, did so Mm -hmm. as teenagers. Uh And once you get past that moment as an adult, a lot of people kind of close off to It's harder to reach them. Yeah, much harder. And I was struck by that, and I, I had this encounter with God that night, and there was this call does anybody here sense that god might be inviting them to dedicate their lives to full-time ministry and specifically with teenagers and i I just i felt like there was this magnet pulling me out of my chair and i went i think it's supposed to be me wow and um and i made that decision that night and i never turned back Hmm. and i really actually i thought I'll work with teens for the rest of my life till I die. Or till if I work with teens my whole life, I might lose my mind. But then they could put me in a wheelchair, wheel me around, I could still be entertaining. There you so, go. yeah, you know. So I just thought <laughs> so yeah, it, it, so I wound up doing youth ministry after I graduated for 13 years. And tell us a little bit about how that transition was because you started a family in the midst of that, you moved, I know, multiple yeah. states. Mhm. Uh, what was a little bit of that like, and then what was the transition and the turning point to decide, oh, maybe this isn't just youth ministry, maybe this is just ministry? Yeah, um, we, I went married my wife. She's from Mobile, Alabama. We met at, at Liberty, so I took her back to New York. So her seeing her first Christmas in New York was very interesting. But she loved um, it. Um, yes and no. <laughs> uh, she liked looking out the window at the snow falling. She did not like driving in it. Yeah. Um, then, so we were there for about two years. I coached soccer, worked on staff part time at the church. Then had an opportunity in Miami to first time going in full time, like I'm full youth pastor job. Did that for three years in Miami. Then then went to St. Louis. Did it for eight years in St. Louis. In the end of our time in St. Louis, there was just a sense that I think we're supposed to transition. I think we're supposed to do something different. And I and it was a two-year struggle for me internally mm-hmm. that I, I felt like God was going, it's time for you to... Mm-hmm. And church planting was kind of emerging as, as a new opportunity in the world of ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't fight it anymore. And it's funny that there was actually another large gathering. I was at a conference in Atlanta, 
and this leadership guy was speaking and asked some kind of a similar question of like, is there something you're resisting? Is God calling you to do something and you're actually resisting to do it? And and he said, would you stand up? And there was like 10,000 people in the room. <laughs> I think I was the first person to stand like, oh. Wow. And, it, you know, there's something about a public gathering where you, um, I get why speakers do that because yeah. I think there's something, it, it's, a, it's a dramatic moment. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, like a, a couple days later when you're like, oh, what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was an experience that marks you. And you go, well, I was responding in the moment to something. Yeah. Whether it was just an emotional moment or something beyond that, I was responding to something. And so there's something powerful about being in a crowd. And um, and some might go, well, that's kind of manipulative. People use language. I, it didn't feel like that to me. It just felt like I was being challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and it was it was helpful for me to go, no, I, I responded. I made a commitment to something. And it was true. It was really true to me. So when I stepped, so long story short is we looked for a place to move, and there's some story to all this, but we wound up in Nashville and Franklin and moved here to plant a church and literally just rolled into town with uh, the church I was at. I'd spent eight years there. We built their youth ministry. We had about 500 teenagers were coming. It was an amazing experience. We had 80 volunteers. I mean, it was just a really, really fascinating journey and experience. And I mean, it's just beautiful memories. Um but we're rolling into town, and now suddenly, nothing. I mean, there's yeah. zero. You know, I, the, the week previous, I'd, I'd talked to kids for hours and hours. Now we walk into town, and there's no, we don't know anybody. Yeah. I knew a college buddy. Uh, actually, Shane and Janine shortly moved into town thereafter, and they were two of the first two people that helped us plant Journey. So I had Shane and Janine, a college buddy, and we just kind of started meeting together going, well, what does it look like to start a church? And the church where I'd left had given me a year salary to kind of just make it. That's helpful. And we had another church give us uh, some money to get the thing started. But that was it. And we we basically were like, well, in youth ministry, we know that relationships matter. Yeah. And you got to be authentic. If I didn't have the word vulnerable then. We used the word authentic. Mm-hmm. This is close to 15 years ago now. But um, we just knew kids were like, they sniffed out the BS. Oh, yeah. So, we should be real, and relationships should matter. Okay, let's start a church. Mm-hmm. Nice. So that's how we started Journey. So I'm curious, just taking a half step back, what was the feeling of, of leaving everything that you had taken and to build up for so many years, and then and then where was the, the, the biggest point of struggle in the transition? Yeah. Um, you know when you're pulling a bow back and you're just creating the tension, 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 tension? Yeah. Uh, I think by the end of our time in St. Louis, and we just built a $2 million building. We literally just opened it. Um, we had been in it a year when we left. Um, there was so much beauty in the relationships there, and we had built a, a really great leadership team, a really trusted team. So I was their youth pastor for eight years. We brought a guy in who interned with us and then be, then came on staff. He stayed for the next eight years. Nice. That church had two youth pastors for 16 years. That's pretty unusual. Yeah. So uh, there was a certain confidence that there's some amazing people in place to care for these students mm. and this ministry. But the tension within me was so strong that we were meant to do something. And Angie, too. It was both of us. That by the time it was like, go, it really was like sending an arrow. So there was this momentum and excitement and enthusiasm. And we're going to go, like, do this thing. And it was probably maybe two or three months in. Three months, maybe. We had our first gathering. 
in our living room. We were up to we had fourteen people. Nice. And we we're like, okay. And they everybody left. It was a, it was a nice gathering, and and kind of half the people were like you know they're just kind of sticking their toe in the water. Like yeah, maybe we'll be part of this because we would just meet like we one lady was from the pool, one the couples from the neighborhood, one was this furniture sales lady. Well, half of them had to be your family. <laughs> yes, at least four <laughs> of us. And so um, yeah, there was just this like. Everybody left the house that night, and I remember sitting on the couch going, oh, dear God, what did we do? <laughs> what in the world? We have 14 people. Yeah. And I also remember sitting with my journal. I went to a coffee shop and sitting with my journal, and I had no one, no one was seeking me out for advice or counsel or guidance. And for the previous eight years, I had lines of kids that I would talk to. Yeah. And there was definitely like now hook that middle school kid right like hey you're not seen nobody knows you hook that 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 college kid that was abused for not doing it right yeah and there was definitely some insecurity that came up which I peep anyone who starts anything tells me this is how they feel when you're starting something from scratch and your whole you all you have is a dream there was all this insecurity of did we make the right decision mm. is this the right thing and at that you only have hope you only have faith to hold on to that God really called you to a thing and if there's anything I learned through it it's this you just stay in motion yeah stay in motion trust the process trust God I just started a business um, about a week and a half ago a coaching business I've been kind of doing it for a year but uh, I added a formality to it and there's so many things I don't know I don't understand there's all there's things that intimidate me and I just know every day I have to keep showing up. I mm. trust the process. Yeah. Keep showing up. It's, I feel insecure about things I don't know related to it. And there's somewhere I, I think that's part of the center of Jesus' teaching is you're supposed to walk in faith. Yeah. And you're reminded real quickly that you can't count on yourself. Yeah. And being present. Yeah. And you're present. And you're present to all of that icky stuff. Like, yeah. ooh, what's that? That feels. Like, I feel insecure, I feel like I fear, or and then you get to name it and go, oh, it's just fear. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of pretty normal, and then you speak it out, and yeah. all right, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow and trust the process and just keep showing up and doing the work. Yeah, it gives you information about where you're checking in at. It does. I had a friend of mine say, you know, when you start something, whatever the failures are, they're just data points. Mm -hmm. So when you go, well, I screwed that up, or I screwed that up, you go, oh, it's just a data point. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about in athletics, like, wow, I totally missed that shot. Why? Well, because I can't. Like in soccer, I would say to my students all the time, or our players, you got, if, you're gonna, if you're shooting on goal, you've got to lean over the ball. Yeah. If you're a fullback and you're playing defense, you've got to lean back. So you lean back, you give it lift. If you lean forward, you keep it low. Well, so you shot the ball over the net. What happened? Oh, the data point, oh, you failed. Okay, yeah, but the data point is you got to lean over the ball. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of the, like, oh, I'm afraid of failure, I'm afraid of failure. No, just go do something, and right. if it doesn't work out right, data point. Yeah, but but there is a process to detaching the emotion from those things that can be seen as just data points. Yeah, you have to do the. It's really applying meaning to it, right? Yeah. Because if you have a voice in your head going, "You're a failure. You're terrible. You suck. You're awful. You're an idiot." You, you know, which is real because people have said those things to us. Yeah. You have to come up and you know, kind of check in with you and go, well, what's true here? Change the script. Yeah, change. That's great. Change the script. Yeah. What would you have said in those first couple years in Tennessee? Did you have a picture in mind of what success of? I mean, you moved here, like you said, kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. 
what what was success going to look like for you? You know, um, I remember writing down something like, I, 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 was, I remember I was reading some like supervisionary people, so they were like, well, if you're going to dream, don't dream small, dream big. So I was like, well, okay, I wonder if we could do a podcast from the moon. Like... <laughs> Like, I mean, I was like, well, sure. it's, it's wow. possible. What's the biggest I could dream up? Actually, I wouldn't have said podcast. Then it would have been like something else because we didn't have podcast. Yeah, uh, right. Radio um, show. Yeah, some show. Can we do? Can we a service? I probably was like, can we do a service from the moon? Like, I was like, how do you have eight hundred thousand people? Like, I mean, I remember like writing stuff like that down because I was like, I'm, sw- I want to dream big, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, that stuff was just. I would look back and I would go. It probably was just a practice to cause me to. Yeah engage my imagination and think yeah. beyond what I thought I could do. Um, so those were like when I first landed, I remember like doing a couple of exercises like that, but the actual reality, I, I didn't, people would say, do you have like a target audience? And it's funny. I, in some ways I, I don't think, I think the vision was being formed with you and Janine and mm-hmm. the other people who were with us. Like I had some inklings, I had some maybe intuition, mm-hmm. but most of it was subconscious, and I don't think I could speak it out. And it wasn't until I was in community that the vision could be articulated. And when I look back, I still have some of our notes from those early. Like we had a remember that fl- that white what oh. do you call it that um, piece flip, of paper? Flip chart. Yeah, the, yeah, it's like a flip chart thing. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, um, post-it note. Yes. Deal. I, I saved it in. It's from our first gathering, and and we said we don't want to use the word member for a church. What, and I'm a realist being like, what do you call them? And we came up with the word partner. How about let's like we're doing this together. It's not a membership club. It's like we just and and I'm not a professional. Yeah, I'm just a one. I'm a guy like you. I'm have, I, this is my vocation, but I'm just serving like you are. Yeah. Um. Everybody's supposed to show up and bring their gifts to it. That's what the church is. So in time, the vision crystallized into. Hey, let's really, let's really be sensitive to those out there who've been wounded by religion. I certainly could relate to that. I think that was probably hovering down in the subconscious. And I think, I didn't know this, but I think in reaching out to people who were hurting, I was healing myself in the process. Sure. Mm. I did, but uh, I wouldn't have known that. that for a second. I think I still carried some of the wounds of that being beaten up by spiritual authority. Mm. And it sent a message to me. So my my parents were uh, very servant-oriented. Yes. But they weren't great at boundaries. Many so, are. So they modeled for me how to not have good boundaries. They modeled some amazing things. My, I'm very close to my folks, and they're incredible people. Anybody who knows them, would, you know, they really are. All they've done is pour their lives into other people for mm-hmm. a lifetime. But and they, if they were here, they'd go, yep, we needed to do some work on saying no. And so I, it was hard for me to say no, and I, I had this sense that I was meant to rescue or be the martyr or sacrifice, or that's just what you do. Yeah. And so go back to that college experience. When this guy's lighting me up and shredding my dignity and shaming me in front of any, everyone, if I had the tools I had now, I would have been like, hey, it doesn't matter that you're an adult or you're a spiritual authority. This isn't okay. Yeah. So you're going to keep talking like that. I'm removing myself from this conversation. And even if the guy grabbed me and goes, well, then I'm going to put you on an airplane and send you home, which I'm sure he would have said, um, I could go, okay, send me home. But this isn't okay. Yeah. This is not how you treat another human being. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would say now, right? I, but as a 20-year-old, I didn't know to say that. I stayed in that experience thinking I'm supposed to be obliterated verbally by a human being 
And that's what your spiritual authority has the right to do. Mm-hmm. And that was an extension of your familial relationship. It was. like my, when my parents weren't abusive like that, but my parents would have understood it the same way. Yeah. Um, they would have thought spiritual authority has the right to treat you like this because they're authority. Yeah. So thus, when I became a pastor, I think I actually... Um, there's a word in psychology called disassociative. Mm-hmm. I think I was actually... I disassociated from my influence. I didn't want to use the word pastor. Truly, my I re- originally when I started planning journey, I was like, I'm going to call myself a spiritual navigator. Yeah, I don't even want to use the word because again, I didn't know the degree of the wound. Because there's a trauma there. There's that a trauma. You name. Yes, and I I was so afraid that I would hurt someone like I'd been hurt. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And now I've been a pastor 13 years, and the sad part is I know I've hurt people. Now, I have never berated anyone like that, yeah. but I've hurt them because uh, they thought I, I, I've i had conversations with some people like, hey, I felt like you left the conversation abruptly, or I felt like you wanted to talk to someone else instead of me, or I felt like you weren't available for me or present for me, or uh, I didn't feel seen by you, or whatever. But that's not because you're a pastor, that's because you're a person. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's true. Well said, DJ. Um, but, it's, but, but I represent something for people yes. in their lives, right? Yes. Um, and, and you have no no uh, authority over what that is no, for well, each well individual. Well said. I can't control that. Yeah. And anytime you're in any kind of a position of leadership, it's easy for transference for people to go, you represent my dad, mm-hmm. you represent my coach, you yes. represent a teacher or a previous pastor. So it's easy to kind of be the lightning rod for that. And I've had to accept that, that I, I can't control what someone may perceive. But I, but I want to be responsible for me, and I want to lead with kindness. Yeah. And I think it – not I think – I know at times I've tried to tell myself almost like pretend you're not a pastor in your mind so you never hurt anybody. Hmm. So I've I've downplayed my influence hmm. so I wouldn't risk the abuse of power. I, I've noticed that in, in the interactions I've seen with you and, and people. Almost like like I could tell there's a there's a, a stickiness, like a, a wound there of like a, uh how will people perceive me if I lead with this? Almost? Yeah, yeah. So it take so for me to lead with. I and it's funny. I can be direct and strong when I need to be, um, but there are times. I know there are times I've avoided it. I don't feel that much. I don't feel too much of that now. Um, but what do you I, think activates that for you? That directness, the strength in uh, that, being able to own deep conviction from God. No, like this is where we're supposed to go. Mm. So those moments where I'm like. You know, fist on the on the table, like, hey, this is where we're going. Yeah, those like set the direction, make the, that's a pretty good definition of leadership. Mm-hmm. Set the direction, make the tough call. Yeah, I can do it. Uh, I prefer not to because I like uh, collaborative leadership. Yeah. yeah, but at the end of the day, the buck stops here, and I know that. And if I got a like, now we have a kind of a collaborative leadership model called an elder model, but I'm kind of the they call it the first among equals. In other words, we will all vote on something. But the implementation of that, they're looking to me to lead out and cast the vision. Yeah. So uh, that's me. I just got to step into it and go. And if I know it's from God, then I have the conviction. And I, in in those moments, I really don't care. Don't care. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but it's not important to me. If I know this from God, it's like, hey, what you think about me is irrelevant. This, I'm I, I'm convinced this is from God to the degree that I can. I'm going to walk in faith. And if it's not, I'll apologize. I'll take responsibility. But I, when I got to lead, I'm going to lead. And sometimes you just got to lead. 
And so those are the moments where, yeah, if I, but I, which means I got to do the work to really press in and go, I really believe, or I'm with a team of people that collectively goes, we really believe this is what God's calling us to do, buy this property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something we never, we loved renting. Yeah. I hope we're going to buy the property. Multiple services. Okay. You know, <sighs> that, all that stuff. Is there, a, is there something that you can look back on, um, maybe not a specific like moment, but a journey of getting to this place of desiring authenticity and vulnerability? Because one thing that's always that a lot of times has been said about journey or about you is just like most people have never heard that kind of openness and honesty from the pulpit and you know, you get everything ranging from other pastors who say that's not really wise to, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever it is. Um, where do you think that that, that great uh, desire a to be vulnerable yourself with the people that you're that you're uh, pastoring, um, and and then for that really that's really kind of been the uh, maybe the biggest value if we want to say that of journey from the beginning, which led to being a church to the wounded and yeah. because you can come and be vulnerable and say, Hey, yeah, you were wounded. Me too. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. Uh, I had a guy early in ministry say to me, Hey, tell on yourself as often as possible. Hmm. And it stuck with me like, yeah, why not? I mean, we're all struggling. And I, and I, I remember growing up, I didn't really hear any spiritual leaders talk like that they spoke of all their victories Mm -hmm. which is very inspiring like oh dude you crushed that that's cool i want to be like that i want to aspire to that right so there is something to speaking to speak about wonderful moments that have happened um but i but i'm like but the thing is i i think sometimes it takes people the opposite direction like well that's pretty depressing because clearly you just keep crushing it in your life yeah but that's not my reality i i my reality is i might have some of those moments but i got a lot of moments that are horrible yeah and it just felt human. Mm. And I think working with teenagers for 13 years, I mean, the nature of any teenager, I mean, I'd never had a teenager that was like, I crush it every week. You know, like right. every teenager was like, what? I got questions about this and I don't understand this and I'm struggling with this. And I'm like, well, I am too. You're just more honest about it. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think that but the true. teenagers kind of trained me. So it wasn't like when I started Journey, like I had to kind of flip a switch and learn how to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I think I... They had trained me. Being around them, it was like you just kind of naturally also called out whatever wasn't working. So it was like now add so this kind of in, this encouragement from a friend, add how I'd been trained by teens, then add my story, which is I don't want to be on a pedestal, so I'll just keep kicking the I'll keep kicking the legs out of the pedestal yeah. so you don't put me on one. Um, I think because I don't want the pressure of you thinking I'm perfect. Yeah. So I'm sure there was there's no question there's some dysfunction in it too. I'm sure, but uh, but I, the combination of those things like okay I'm just if we can be honest I can do this. But if you need me to be a thing, like if you need me to be like that pastor, it's not going to work because mm-hmm. I will the internal pressure will make me explode. Yep. Mm. So if I can just keep being honest and you'll keep showing up for that. And what was crazy was lo and behold there was oh, a yeah. bunch of people that were like oh yeah. Thank you. Yes. That actually, your marriage is struggling, so is mine. Maybe we can work it out together. Now, there were also people like, honestly, I need a guy who's got his crap together. Yeah. So I need a place that's stable and a guy who tells me what's working most of the time so I can be inspired to what I, inspired to what I want to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. 
Well, there's a lot of churches. And I would submit that what they're really looking for is someone who makes you think he's got yeah. a crap. <laughs> yeah, because nobody actually does. Yeah. And yeah. then 2016 happened. Yeah. And we only have like five minutes left yeah. with you, so I, I know that could be a whole another podcast. I itself. could summarize that whole season by saying one word, grief. Mm. Mm. There was a lot of loss compressed in a short period of time. And the loss, some of it was very real relationships, displacement, some attachments. Yeah. Uh, the Bible's word for that is idolatry. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, very attached to the building we were in at the factory. I loved, loved, loved the factory. I did too. Uh, the, me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, the architecture to me, are the architecture is spiritual. I think it communicates something. And so when you walked into the factory, you immediately saw broken and redeemed. Mm-hmm. Like this was a broken space that's been redeemed for something mm. good. Yeah. And it felt like like half the message was already done by the time you walked in. Mm-hmm. So it set the tone. Um, and being in, and having to leave there, it wasn't our choice. Having to leave there was, was a lot of loss. And, yeah. and I, and I realized that was more connected to it than I realized. So that's an attachment. Yeah. When you, when you feel an energetic bond with something and you can't let go of it, mm-hmm. that's an, that's called attachment. It's yeah. called an idol. It means mm-hmm. you're trusting in something else more than you are God. So that and a lot of other loss just put this through. There was a lot of grief, and I had to learn what it meant to feel through grief, mm. which has a number of stages. Yeah, and then the ends good, with acceptance. Yeah, and it ends with acceptance, of which which I'm there and have been for some time. And you you start a new chapter, and we're right smack in the front end of that new chapter. Yeah, we yeah. are. Speak a little bit in the last two or three minutes that we have to to what. What you're jazzed about right now in, in this season? It feels like I mean we can look outside. We're we're recording here at Journey, and I see a parking lot that's getting paved. I see transition. I see change all around. What is that doing in your heart, and and how is that playing out in your vision? Uh, you know what? My my vision is probably the wrong way to say it because I don't I don't even feel like Journey. I don't think there's a Jamie's vision anymore. Mm-hmm. I think the vision is a collective vision of Journey Church. It's been so disseminated into the people that are Journey mm-hmm. yeah. that it's really a Journey vision. And I, I sometimes get to articulate it, but if I'm articulating and I'm just articulating what's a collective sense of where God's taking us. Mm-hmm. And so the collective sense for for our elder team, our staff team, people have been around Journey for a long time, of which we're just... It's really our conversations and dialogues that really kind of cast some light on where we anticipate we're going. It's we still want to reach out to those who've been disconnected from the church, hurt by the church, wounded by religion, beaten up by a, a Bible that was weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be sensitive. We want to be an emotionally safe space for people that have questions and want to that are curious about the Bible, but they're not sure. And, and that they can come and come with their questions, and it's okay. Yeah. We want to lead with humility. But this is a season, I've used this with a couple people who've asked me, it's a season, it's been a playful season. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the factory, there was it was pretty intense. We had a lot of people in really, really raw places yeah. coming from the fringes of society. I mean, a lot of atheists. We had, we had different people from other religions, and we had one lady who was um, a follower of Islam, and... She came and she was awakening to Christ, but she was like, if I do this, I, I'm going to be killed. Like, my p- family's already told me they'll kill me if I make this decision here at Journey. And wow. I'm, like, we had some heavy-duty stuff we were dealing with over the course of those 10 years. And it was beautiful. Like, we kind of look at the Journey Franklin story as this really beautiful story, but it was a hard and had an intensity mm-hmm. to it. Sure. Um, there are still people dealing with really, really rough things in their lives, but the overall tone right now is... Even in the midst of the tragedy and the difficulty, 
there's a spirit of playfulness here. Mm-hmm. Like we're not taking ourselves too seriously, <laughs> which you can't in our building because yeah. it's a mix between laughable and charming. <laughs> um, but I think in a way God's done that. Like he, we're growing up as a church yeah. and there's a, like let's, let's make sure that we are always an emotionally safe space for people. That's our calling in this town. That's yeah. what we sense from God. Uh, but it's also playful. We're going to laugh a lot and have fun and, um, and kind of adjust to the way the Spirit of God is moving. We're not kind of too far out, like we've got this 10-year vision. We're trying to be organized and create healthy systems because uh, we're grow- we're a growing church, so we want to be think ahead to creating systems that, that help a church scale. But we love church planting, and we love sending people, so we anticipate that being part of our future too. We, we may do our very first uh, multi-site. We've never done that. Um, just to uh, maintain some of the culture journey, but put it in a different location. Yeah, that might be something new. I hope we keep church planting because we've been part of ten different church plants in our thirteen years. We love that, so we got to find a church planner that we can support. But we'd love to do that, and so we love sending people. So I hope that that remains a part of who we are in the days ahead. It does feel like where journey is now. It's coming to this um, the phrase for a time such as this mm. to take out of context something to prove <laughs> to support what I want to say. Uh, but a wonderfully poetic line yes. that's useful for this yes. moment. Yes. Don't look it up and be like, well, that's what that's really saying. I yeah, understand right, what you're right. saying. <laughs> um, but it does feel like we're pri- – it feels to me, my personal opinion, that we're primed for yeah. kind of where we're at as a – as a culture, as a country, um, and even even kind of spiritually, what I think a lot of people are asking and wondering about, I feel like we're so right in the in the perfect spot to be able to to uh, you know support that. Yeah. To, maybe wrestle with them. Yes. Sit yeah. with them yes. in the struggle. Yeah. Yeah, right. So maybe partner ju- with. Yeah, partner. That's really good. Thank you. Uh, like I think Journey Franklin was like, let's sit with you in your brokenness and pain. Mm-hmm. Your life's been obliterated. Because um, again, we just just col- the, for whatever reason that season we just collected a lot of horrific circumstances, right? Yeah. Um, and again, it's not that some of those don't exist, but uh, it's almost like we're in that place for people's relationship very much with God now. It, I, I'm stereotyping because there was definitely some of that in Journey Franklin days as well. But there's just this whole I I have. I don't. I need a new container for God, mm-hmm. and we keep saying, "What if there really isn't a container? What if the container is really permeable and flexible? And what if actually your relationship with God is going to always continue to evolve?" Mm. And so, yes, I understand that there's some kind of container so that we can communicate who He is and share His love with people, but let's keep looking for the, some metaphors that work for us. N- and, and, and abandon the quest for certainty that seemed yes. to describe the church for so many centuries. Yes. And lean into the uncertainty. And if we can use these words, I think these have been important words for us. Opportunity, curiosity, mm. and invitation. Mm. Love it. If, if these words can, because if you put all those together, you really, I think, have the word adventure. Mm-hmm. If you put these together, we're, we lean into an adventure of uncertainty because we trust a certain God. Yeah. But rather than going, I've got to really figure God out so that I can be certain, so that I can defend him against people that want to attack him, which was, I think, a trajectory for a while in the church. And we're just going, I think probably God could take care of himself. And 
how about we and himself is even kind of a like limiting phrase mm-hmm. even the word god is a limiting phrase mm-hmm. so how do we just press forward into an awakening to who god is and how right. he relates to us and just being <clears throat> honest like you even say the phrase and i know what you mean by defending god but i would submit that it was probably more truthful statement would be so defending my concept of god yes yeah. Like I think that's probably a little more of the like, wait a minute, don't don't rock the boat of everything I've ever built my life and spiritual, you know, thing on. Um, and I get it because it's, it's kind of a little scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but at least be truthful. Yeah, we're trying to say we don't want to trust doctrine. Yeah. We want to trust God. We don't want to trust the Bible. We want to trust God. We don't want to trust prayer. We want to trust. God. Now we can use doctrine, the Bible, prayer, and other spiritual practices as portals to know God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as soon as we stop at the doctrine, the Bible, prayer, or some yeah. other spiritual discipline, yeah. then that has become our God. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's make sure we remember that God is a, a deep and wonderful mystery. who's a relational expression, and it's good. We're yeah. Invited in. We're not idolizing the doctrine. We're I, we're we're coming into relationship and having a, an experiential relationship well said with an infinitely knowable and unknowable god well said mm-hmm. beautiful and i know you got to go so the last question that we ask all of our lovely guests is what are some things that are giving you life these days i'm reading nt Wright's um a translation on the new testament mm. and that's been really enjoyable uh it's the first thing that comes to mind I've been working really hard for the last eight weeks, so I'm trying to think what else is giving me life. I love reading, so reading yeah. anything. Richard Rohr's uh, been an author who's been very inspiring to me. Um, he's got a book out that I've been reading that's inspiring, giving me life. My family always gives me life. Yeah, the Buffalo Bills right now yeah. are giving me life. <laughs> don't I don't, jinx I'm, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm dating the podcast, so I won't say what the record is. Oh but, yeah. We'll yeah, but you'll know based on wherever the season goes how, <laughs> how long the podcast right. will be relevant. Uh, up so, and down. Up yeah, and yeah, down. yeah. Uh, right, right. Well, thanks so much, Jamie, thank for, you, for taking time out of your super busy schedule thanks, to, to meet with us. Uh, for all things Idiopod, check us out, idiopod.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.